Good morning, everybody. Somebody called my name. I like that. <laughs> you know, one of the wonderful things about uh, winter, there are many benefits, but it reminds you how much you appreciate warmth. It really does. Um, for those of you that are new, uh, my name is Somane Megadi. <clears throat> I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Resurrection, and we're happy that you are here with us. Um, I just love seeing your faces. I just love seeing people gathering together as a family. So thank you for coming this morning, family, Church of the Resurrection. Our sermon series uh, during Epiphany is Practicing Kingdom Diplomacy. And so far we've been looking at chapters, uh, we're going to be looking at chapters 12 to 15. We've looked at chapter 12. These chapters give practical advice for how we as a church can practice kingdom diplomacy anywhere, but especially in a capital city, you know, like Rome or, I don't know, D.C. maybe, you know. We've seen that kingdom diplomacy actually begins with God's work. Verse 1 and 2 of Romans 12 says that he gifts us with transformational worship. And then we've, seen, um, we've also seen that he gives us gifts to serve one another and maintain unity and love one another. Today we're going to be looking at Romans 12 from verse 14 to 21. One of the aspects of kingdom diplomacy is being peacemakers in the midst of persecution. The first song we, we sang this morning for the procession, we were asking ourselves how long, because sometimes we're in the midst of this suffering, things are so hard, things are so terrible, we're waiting for God to do something. And yet the scriptures say that we should pursue peace as much as possible. When you read verse 14 to verse 21, there's a sense, you can make a case that this is referring to people who are not believers. But I also know from, our own, from the context of Romans and also from just personal experience, it's entirely possible for Christians to persecute Christians, right? So I'm going to look at this passage and assume that it's speaking to both situations. I think it has a lot to teach us about peacemaking in the midst of strife and conflict. Peacemaking in the midst of strife and conflict. So that's what we're gonna look at, but let's pray first. We remain grateful, Father, for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you find yourself in the midst of suffering and persecution. What do you do? What do you do? First thing is found in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So you have to bless somebody. You have to be a blessing. That's the first thing. You have to be a blessing. To bless someone is to speak well of them, to invoke a benediction upon them, to pray for their prosperity, to ask God to bless them with abundance. Now, the word that Paul uses for persecute has this sense of someone pursuing somebody else with an intent to evil, intent to harm them. So it's closely related to the word that Paul uses in chapter, in chapter 12, verse 13. The last part of verse 13 actually says, pursue hospitality. Continue to pursue hospitality. And yet here we have people that might pursue you for an intent to do harm. So there's a contrast here. There, Paul wants us to pursue hospitality, but he's also aware that there are people that are going to pursue us with the intention to harm us. And to those people, we bless. We respond by blessing them, whether they be fellow believers, fellow believers, 
or non-believers. He's repeating what Jesus said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your neighbors. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's what he's repeating here. Both Jesus and Paul aren't just saying that you shouldn't hate those who persecute you. They're not saying you should ignore them or avoid them either. And they're not saying, look, if you can't say anything nice at all, don't say, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything nice at all. Don't say anything at all. That's not what they're saying. In fact, what they're saying is that you can and you should say something nice. You should bless your enemy in prayer. That doesn't mean you're not going to be angry or frustrated or annoyed at what they're doing to you. But it does mean that in the midst of all of that, you should find in your life in Christ, by the grace he's giving you, a sense of a desire to bless them and to bless them. To ask God to make his face shine upon them and give them peace. The kind that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are aware of the situation in Nigeria. I've shared updates with, with you guys on the list, listserv. Religious unrest and violence are normal. And during one of the crises in my hometown of Joss, a dear former student of mine lost everything, almost everything that he had. His mentor was killed by Islamic extremists. Islamic extremists also killed his fiance and her family except for uh, her father. And they did it in front of her father and let him live with that sorrow. I saw how devastated he was. But when you talked to him, and when you heard him pray, all he, all he had a desire for was that God would forgive those who did this evil act. And he prayed for them and he blessed them. Till day, this student, this friend of mine, is still passionate about raising up Christian leaders in the Muslim North because he wants them to come to faith in Christ. That's hard. Despite what he's going through, he's blessing his enemies. That's really, really hard. I wonder how Paul felt when he was penning these words down. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Was he thinking about how he persecuted the church? How at one point he was the one who was persecuting others? Was he thinking about how he supervised Stephen's death? Stood and watched this saint die. It was on his head. Was he thinking about the words that came out of Stephen's mouth as he died? Lord, do not charge them for this sin. In many ways, we should thank Stephen for the gift of Paul. Maybe that was the beginning of God working in Paul's life to bring him into faith. I encourage you, the next time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're praying that format, when you come to that portion that says, and forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. Pause. Think about those who frustrate you, annoy you, people that you actually hate and want nothing to do with, and bless them and pray for them and ask that God would give them the gift of salvation. That is what you should do. It's hard, but it's also very cathartic and it makes you a better person. What I mean by that is that it makes you more like Jesus Christ. The thing about being a blessing, though, is that it doesn't stop at just simply the words you speak, blessing other people. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That also means that if you want to be a blessing to people, you need to 
sympathize with what, whatever it is that they're going through, whether they're a Christian or not. Now, sometimes you don't feel like rejoicing with somebody, and sometimes you don't feel like weeping with other people, either because you don't identify with their situation or you're going through your own stuff and you just don't have the energy to bear anything anymore. But the thing is, if you are a Christian, you are a part of the body of Christ, right? What one part of the body goes through, the rest of the body experiences in some way. Every action that you experience and that other fellow believers experience affects the body of Christ. I mean, think about it. If you have a toothache, the rest of your body isn't going to sleep well. <laughs> you're going to be struggling throughout the night. Your head feels it, and you're not going to get any rest. When you eat a good meal, your brain thanks you, right? What happens to one part of your body affects the rest of your body. It is a very strange body in which like, a certain part doesn't participate in the full life of that other body. Now, when it comes to non-believers, people who don't know Jesus Christ, it might be even harder to rejoice and to weep with them, especially if they are ones who persecute us or ones whom we just don't like. But remember that we are priests of God. So it is our responsibility to present the joys and the sorrows of this world to God on behalf of the world. We bless non-believers by sympathizing with their sorrow and exalting in the good that God allows them to experience. Second Kings chapter 5. There's a story of this little girl. The Syrians went on a raid against Israel, and they captured this little girl. Definitely, they were her enemies. But serving under the mistress, or under the wife of, of one of the men, Nam, uh, not Naaman, she noticed that Naaman had leprosy, and her thoughts wasn't, ha, 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 yes, the Lord is punishing him. Her thoughts was like, oh, if only my master would go see the prophet in Israel, he would certainly be healed. That's how you rejoice and you weep with those who rejoice and you weep. Look what happened. You know the story. Naaman became a believer in the Lord because of what this girl did. So be a peacemaker in the, in the midst of suffering and conflict by being a blessing, both in what you say and in how you sympathize with the world. Second thing is that you should be a peacemaker by practicing humility. That's verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely, with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The first part of verse 16, live in harmony with one another, can also be translated, be of the same mind toward one another. And I think that, that translation brings home the point a little bit more about how you can be humble, how you can live in harmony with one another. Listen to the words of John Chrysostom on verse 16. I'm so proud of myself that I said Chrysostom. I said it right. All right. Uh, verse 16. Listen to what he's saying. All right. And what does he mean by be of the same mind one towards another? Has a poor man come into your house? Be like him in your bearing. Do not put on any unusual pompous air or, or account of your riches. There is no rich and poor in Christ. Be not then ashamed of him because of his external dress, but receive him because of his inward faith. And if you see him in sorrow, do not disdain to comfort him, nor if you see him in prosperity, feel abashed at sharing his pleasure and being gladdened with him. 
but be of the same mind in his case that you would be of in your own case. <clears throat> For it says, be of the same mind one towards another. For instance, if you think yourself a great man, therefore think him so likewise. Do you suspect that he is, a mean, he is mean and little? Well, then pass this same sentence upon yourself and cast aside all unevenness. This kind of sounds like do unto others as you would have them do unto you and love your neighbor as yourself. The recipients of this, of this letter, the Christians in Rome, some of them had reason to be very, very proud. They lived in the capital, the seat of power. Some of them worked for important political uh, figures and wielded, wielded influence, sort of like us here. Some of them were born citizens of Rome. When they became Christians, their world <laughs> suddenly included the poor. It suddenly included people who were not Romans, people who were slaves and servants. They gathered together with these people in fellowship. Now, that kind of combination is rife with divisive potential. And to combat that, to keep the peace, to maintain the unity, Paul says, be humble. If you connect verse 16 of the chapter we're in with verse 1 and 2, Humility makes, makes perfect sense. It's difficult to be haughty and wise in your own eyes when you, when, when you judge yourself based on what God has done and who God is. It's just really hard. It's difficult for you to look down on anybody else because as you become more and more like Jesus Christ, you will naturally associate with the lowly because that is what Jesus Christ himself did. So the passage is telling us to be humble. Be of one mind towards one another. That doesn't mean that we're going to agree on everything. Certainly not. In fact, in Romans, we'll come to it, we'll see that there's actually a disagreement in the church in Rome right now, possibly. And Paul's solution isn't that they all come to a consensus about what is right and what is wrong regarding that disagreement. No, that's not his solution. Christians will have differing opinions about many things, and that's okay. It's fine. We can disagree on some things as long as we practice humility with one another to maintain and build the peace. So be a peacemaker in the midst of suffering and conflict by being a blessing and practicing humility. The third point is that we should be peacemakers by trusting God and doing good. Verse 17 to 19 say, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. First of all, trusting God means relinquishing the desire to pay back evil or seek vengeance. This is what verse 17 to 19 talks about. There's a saying that's been popularized in Nigeria by a song. It's, um, do me, I do you, God no go vex. I love it with the accent. It's so beautiful. It basically means tit for tat, and God isn't going to be concerned about it. He's not going to be angry. That's what it means. And a lot of people live like that, but Paul is saying, no, that's not how you should live. You do not give tit for tat. You do not repay evil with evil. You rather step back and say, and, and leave room for God's wrath. Because vengeance and repayment belong to God. You've got to trust that God is just, that God is holy, and that he will certainly repay when it is time. 
Part of the reason for that is because when we sin, when somebody does evil to us or when we do evil to somebody else, the person who is primarily wronged is God. It is God that is primarily wronged. So God, being God, sees and knows all things perfectly, so when he takes vengeance, his wrath will be just. And let's not forget that you and I, at one point, were were poised to receive the wrath and vengeance of God for our sins. But Jesus Christ stood between us and the wrath of God, and we were saved. And ultimately, that should be our desire for anybody who persecutes us, for anybody that we think is our enemy, that they will accept the work of Christ and be freed from the vengeance and wrath of God. So part of being a peacemaker means getting out of God's way, right? And let him handle it. But it isn't enough that we refrain from taking vengeance. We're supposed to actively pursue our enemies with good deeds. That's verse 20 and 21. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the very tiny book of Obadiah, one chapter, God is angry with with the nation of, of, of Edom. Edom and Israel were related through Isaac and Esau. In that book, Israel had sinned in some particular way. We're not sure what exactly. And God was punishing Israel for their sins by sending a foreign nation against them to punish them for their sins. And listen to what God said to Edom, Israel's brother, but oftentimes enemy. On that day, you stood there and didn't do anything. Strangers took your brother's army into exile. Keep in mind, this was God's punishment on, on, on Israel. Godless foreigners invaded and pillaged Jerusalem. You stood there and watched. You were as bad as they were. You shouldn't have gloated over your brother when he was down and out. You shouldn't have laughed and joked at Judah's sons when they were face down in the mud. You shouldn't have talked so big when everything was so bad. You shouldn't have taken advantage of my people when their lives had fallen apart. You, of all people, should not have been amused by their troubles, their wrecked nation. You shouldn't have taken the shirt off their back when they were knocked flat, defenseless. And you shouldn't have stood waiting at the outskirts and cut off refugees and traitorously turned in helpless survivors who had lost everything. It's interesting that God is punishing Israel, but he expected Edom to do something else, to show kindness and love to the recipients of his judgment and wrath. Isn't that interesting? See, we are not to delight in and exacerbate the misfortune of the wicked. Our responsibility is to show them love through through good deeds. It's a powerful testimony of God's love when we do good deeds to our enemies, especially when they are down and out, when we can sense victory and freedom just around the corner. Such a powerful testimony. Now, what's this burning coals of fire on the head business? Let's talk about that for a second. Paul's quoting Proverbs 25. And whenever I read this, that, that, that proverb um, and I see burning coals, the image that comes to mind is, is um, one of Calvin, from Calvin and Hobbes. 
He's rubbing his hand gleefully, just re- waiting with a mischievous smile to, to pour burning coals on his enemy. Revenge, sweet, sweet revenge. That's what I see. <clears throat> That's not what it is. <laughs> no. Um, I don't think it makes sense to think of good Christian responses to evil as some sort of punishment, especially since Paul just said the vengeance and repayment belong to the Lord, right? I think this is something else. The term burning coals appears several times in scripture. Sometimes it just means burning coal. Um, Sometimes it's associated with worship in the temple. Sometimes it's associated with God's judgment. Like in Psalm 140, it's clear. God, send burning coals of fire on my enemies. It's pretty clear. Other times, it's about inner purification. For example, think about um, Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah met the Lord. He saw the glory of the Lord, and immediately he was like, Woe! Woe is me! Because I have seen the Lord, and I have unclean lips, and I'm a person of, I come from a people of unclean, uh, of, of unclean lips as well. An angel goes and gets a burning coal and touches his lips with it, and he is clean. And I think that in our context, this is what verse 21 is talking about. Because you see, the hope is that we were, we're going to overcome evil by doing good. That's the hope. So I believe burning coals of fire refers to the process by which an enemy comes face to face with the kindness and love of God through our actions and is hopefully led to repentance. This is not a Calvin and Hobbes glee moment, sorry. It's about creating a situation whereby an enemy may be won over by acts of kindness. You see, deeds go a long way in breaching gaps where words often fail. You might disagree ideologically with somebody that you don't like, you hate, whatever term you want to use, but once you see them shower you with good deeds, you have to step back and change your perception of who they are because they're doing all these good things, but then you have all these thoughts about them, you know? And then with God in the mix, the Holy Spirit uses uses these everyday acts of kindness to burn through the, 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 the... the, what do you call it, the unbelief, burn through the wickedness that they might see Christ and be convicted of their sins, be purified the way Isaiah's lips were purified. This is how evil is overcome, not with hatred and violence, but with acts of peace with goodness. It's folly to try and use anything other than good to overcome evil. If you try to use evil to overcome evil, it just makes it worse. Both you and the person that you are attacking become worse because of it. So let's overcome evil with good, with good works. So we've seen that we can be peacemakers during times of persecution by being a blessing, both in what we say and in how we sympathize with the world, by practicing humility, by trusting that God will handle it, and in that trust, also doing good. I want to end by sharing two examples of how I've seen other Christians respond to persecution by peacemakers. Back to Nigeria. (laughs) In 2014, there was a strong, and I think there is still a strong military presence in Jos, the hometown, my hometown, where I grew up. And some of these soldiers were faithful, and they were trying to do their jobs. A lot of them were not. Members of the church I attended were, were extorted, by these soldiers, they were beaten, 
They were brutalized by a lot of them. And some of these soldiers that did these things claimed to be Christians. Yet, at some point that year, the young adults in our church, we call them the youths. Nigeria youth means 18 to 34. It's a weird designation. I don't know why that is. But anyway, the youths of our church <laughs> uh, decided to, do, to perform a, a ministry to these soldiers. So they went throughout the city. We rented a bus. We went throughout the city from checkpoint to checkpoint. And we gave uh, gift baskets that were filled with like breakfast things to help these soldiers like get through the cold nights and mornings because it was cold out there. So we get to the checkpoints and then we'd hand these baskets and we ask them, how can we pray for you? Have you ever seen a soldier cry? I learned later that day that a Muslim, because of what we did, gave his life to Christ that day. And some of the people who went out to do that were people that were brutalized by these same soldiers. Example two, I'm gonna toot my in-laws horn. <laughs> my in-laws, as some of you know, run a school in Nigeria that uh, develops pastors and raises leaders for missions, especially to the Muslim North. Um, I shared through our listserv that um, throughout the pen, well, several times over the last decade or so, their compound was attacked. The villages around their uh, compound were attacked by Fulani herdsmen. People were killed. Um, place was ransacked. During the pandemic, they decided that they were going to, as much as possible, help those who were in need. So along with some friends from Seattle, they raised a lot of money and they fed, they gave like more than a thousand packages of food to hungry families. Families were waiting for it. They ministered to the villagers who, whose, 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 whose village had been uh, destroyed. But they also ministered to some Muslim families. And most of those families had connection to, or part, were part of the Fulani herdsmen that initially attacked some of these villages. Of course, the villagers, some of them grumbled about it. But the imam, the Islamic teacher for this community of Muslims, called my in-laws and thanked them for helping his community and said, God will surely bless you. We don't know the extent of, we don't know the consequences of that action. We don't know how far down in eternity what they did is going to, is going to reap. We're not sure. We will find out, you know? But only God can reward such things. So pursue peace. Pursue peace by being a blessing, by practicing humility, by trusting God and doing good. Tomorrow is MLK's birthday, and I want to end with a quote from one of his sermons. It's a sermon that he pretended that he was, that, that he was reading a letter from Paul to American Christians. He was talking about segregation and, and, and racial injustice, but I think this broadly applies to us. This is what he said. May I say just a word, of, a word to those of you who are struggling against this evil. Always be sure that you struggle with Christian methods and Christian weapons. Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press on for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using only the weapon of love. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. Always avoid violence. If you succumb to the temptation of using violence in your struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness, and your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. 
in your struggle for justice, let your oppressor know that you were not attempting to defeat or humiliate him, or even to pay him back for injustices that he has heaped upon you. Let him know that you are merely seeking justice for him as well as for yourself. Let him know that the festering sore of segregation or any other evil debilitates the white man as well as the Negro, the oppressed as well as the oppressor. With this attitude, you will be able to keep your struggle on high Christian standards. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.